me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. This morning I'd like to start a new study as well as continue a study that we've already begun. It's a new study because we're going to look at the book of Nehemiah for the first time and do so for today and the next eight weeks. But it's a continuation of a study because we've already taken six weeks to study the first volume of this two-volume set, Ezra. Historically, I mentioned uh, several weeks ago that Ezra and Nehemiah were part of a two-volume set. Uh, It wasn't until the mid-15th century that anyone ever divided these into two books. It was actually just one book, Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, so these books come on the heels of the book of Daniel, which we studied a few months ago. In Daniel, we saw the beginning of the exile, uh, and we saw that, that God was judging the nation of Judah because of their sin, that God had given them a covenant to obey, and yet they disobeyed it. They ignored it, and as a result, God brought about this nation, Babylon, to capture the Jews and take them back to their hometown. Nebuchadnezzar was the one who led up this charge, and uh 605 B.C. He brought the Jews to Babylon in three waves, three groups of people he brought back. The first group included Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, among others. And the goal of that first group of exiles was to train them in the Babylonian culture. They were supposed to be the wisest of the Jews and the youngest, youngest, most promising, uh, kind of the who's who among upcoming uh, uh scholars, and so they were going to train them in the Babylonian culture and in the Babylonian religion, and they, they uh, brought them back to Babylon in order to do so. But God was with them, and God led them, and they were unwilling to compromise by bowing down to the idol that, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had made of himself. And during that time also, God told Daniel through a vision that this captivity, this exile of Judah would not last forever but that it would last for 70 years, 70 years from the time that it began. And so while Daniel did not make it back to Jerusalem, there was a group that was led back. The exile did come to an end. Zerubbabel led a group of over 50,000 Jews back to Jerusalem in 535 B.C., 70 years after it began. And Ezra records those events for us in Ezra chapters 1-6. through the Jews of of this first return were successful in rebuilding the temple. If God was going to be worshipped, they need to restore worship at the temple. And so you remember the very first thing that they do is is they restore the altar, the bronze altar, and then they start building up uh, all of the the temple itself and and refurnishing it as it was supposed to be. But they were not successful in remaining separate from the pagans. And so Ezra finds out about this. He was a young man when they, this first wave of exiles went back. But then as he grows older, he finds out that these Jews are not living according to God. They are not worshiping in the temple as they ought to be. And so he leads a group back to Jerusalem from Babylon, uh, a much smaller group, probably in the thousands. And he wanted to reform the people. He wanted to see spiritual reformation among the people. They already had the rebuilding of the temple. Now, reformation of the spiritual uh, the spiritual area, the spiritual component of the people. And so he leads a group back 
and in order to worship properly, he brings lots of goods with him. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he started to establish leadership, started to set up some courts so that they could handle the enforcement of God's Word, Moses' law. He began to teach the Word of God to them. And as a result, as he began teaching, the people discovered that they were living in defiance to God. And so they came to Ezra and said, listen, we've got some some problems going on. We've got some inter- intermarrying of pagans. And so that second trip took place in 458 B.C. Well, now 14 years have passed and we come to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is now back in Babylon. He and Ezra likely were friends when they were in Babylon. knew each other well. And Nehemiah is working back in Babylon as one of the king's advisors. And just as God stirred up the hearts of the Jews in Ezra 1, and just as God stirred up the heart of Ezra in Ezra 7, God is also going to stir up the heart of Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem and bring about uh, a rebuilding project as well as a spiritual reformation project, just like Ezra. So if we think about the book in two sections, Ezra was Ezra 1-6, to rebuilding the temple, Ezra 7-10, to reformation of the people. And in Nehemiah, it's very similar. You have the first part of Nehemiah talking about the, the rebuilding of the walls around the city and then the reformation of the people spiritually. You have both of those things going on. So before we think about the book of Nehemiah as a whole, uh, what I want to do this morning is two things. I want to introduce the book to you, show you kind of what it's doing, what the, the, the layout is, why it's here in the Scriptures. And then I also want to look at chapter 1 with you this morning and just see how we can apply that to our lives. But we, before we look at the book of Nehemiah as a whole, let's take a step back or maybe a helicopter ride up to the 30,000 foot level of the entire Old Testament because I think Nehemiah is one of four helpful dates that we can hang hooks on if we understand where he is in terms of Old Testament history. If you can remember these four dates in the Old Testament you will be able to think clearly about when various events took place in the Old Testament. So first, I've given this to you before, but I just wanted to remind you about it. First, 2000 B.C. is when Abraham was living on the earth. Okay, So if you think 2000 B.C., Abraham. 1500 B.C. is when Moses was living on the earth. Okay, So you have Abraham, 500 years later you have Moses. And then at 1000 B.C. you have King David. And... And then at 500 B.C., you have Nehemiah. Okay, we're, we're coming into uh, uh, 458, 500, somewhere in there. So Nehemiah is the next man you need to think about. So if you can think about those four dates, Abraham, 2000, Moses, 1500, David, 1000, and then Nehemiah, 500. Of course, Jesus at zero. Then, then you are in a good position uh, to, to understand a lot of what the Old Testament says, as you're reading through, you recognize that this is not just a bunch of unrelated stories, but this is a chronological narrative that, that takes us through the, the working of God in, uh, throughout Old Testament history. The book of Nehemiah, so if you think about it in those terms, 500 B.C., the book of Nehemiah now is really the last narrative book in the Old Testament. It's the last historical book. Now, I know in our Old Testament, it falls in the middle, even before Psalms. But, but it's actually, as far as chronologically speaking, it's one of the la- it is 
the last historical book of the Old Testament. Now, there is one book that's written after it, and it's actually a prophecy. It's Malachi. So, if you think of Nehemiah in terms of the prophets, he would have Malachi as one of his contemporaries. And it wasn't going to be for another 400 years after Malachi that God um, sent Jesus to come to the earth. So, the story of Nehemiah is, is in some ways, it's the end of the story. It, it, it brings to an end a long struggle with the people of Israel. It, it, it brings to an end the, the, the struggle that there was between serving God and serving false gods. People who were chosen by God to inherit the land that God had promised to them. We're in Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. So it's the end of the story, but it's also the beginning of a story. It, it, it kind of leads us hanging a little bit. Like, what's going to happen to Israel? Because when we finish this book, when we finish studying this book in several weeks, we're going to find that there is no peace in Israel. These people had been chosen by God and, and the peace and the, the, the protection that they were counting on was not there. And so, this book is a book of opposition. We're going to find that there are enemies, just like with Ezra, there are enemies to the work of God of restoring the temple of Jerusalem. And so the book of Nehemiah will in many ways leave us thirsting for a restored Israel like God had promised to them. One in which a perfect king would come. And that he would fulfill the promises that God had made to Israel about that king and that land. But that king's coming is going to be delayed for another 400 years after Nehemiah's uh, story ends. And when that king would come to Israel, his own people would not want him to be king because his rule as king meant that they had to repent of their sins, right? And so even when that king comes, there still is not full and final restoration like God had promised to the people. So when we look at Nehemiah, sometimes maybe you've heard it, uh, priests are taught as a book about leadership. And there are lots of great leadership skills that we can learn from Nehemiah, but that's not what the book is about primarily. Primarily, it's about God's restoration of His people. God bringing back to a place where the people, to a place where they rebuild the city walls so that they're protected from the opposition and that there's a reformation of the people's hearts. The The book as a whole breaks down into two main parts, just like Ezra did. Chapters 1-7, through seven, the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Chapters 8-13, to 13, the reformation of the people. So these people that come back, as well as the ones who had already been there, God is reforming their hearts. He's changing them, restoring them. So this book is primarily about God's work among His people. He has not forgotten about them. He's not forgotten about their land. He's not forgotten about their king that He's promised. All those things are coming, but, but God is, is working slowly but surely to bring about His promised King and the people back to their promised land. Let's turn our attention to chapter 1. And before we uh, look into what this chapter is about and how God, I think, wants to use it for us, let me, let me read this for us. Nehemiah chapter 1. This is the Word of God. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, 
Now it happened in the month Kislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and survived the captivity, and I asked them about Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments nor the statutes nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. The story of Nehemiah, this book here, begins with a godly Jew who wrote the book, I think, and his name was Nehemiah. He finds out that God's holiness and faithfulness are being treated lightly. There's not proper worship going on in the temple. And he also finds out that the walls of the city have not been rebuilt. The first three verses describe for us why Nehemiah was stirred in his heart by God to lead a group back to Jerusalem. And so in chapter 1, we see this profile of a godly leader named Nehemiah. We find that he's concerned about the holiness of God. The date for this event happens on Kislev, verse 1 says, in the 20th year in Susa, which was one of the palaces where the, the uh, Persian king would reside. And so this is the ninth month of 445 B.C., It's about 13 years after Ezra had arrived in Jerusalem. And by that time, there was reformation that had taken place. They had put away all the pagan wives that the Jews had married. But the occasion for Nehemiah's desire to come back in verses 2 and 3 is found in verses 2 and 3. In Ezra 4, the Jews had begun to rebuild the walls, but apparently they never finished it. And Nehemiah finds out about this from his brother. He has a brother that apparently does a research trip, goes to Jerusalem and comes back and tells Nehemiah, listen, they never finished that project. Can you believe that? That the project that started 12 years ago? And Nehemiah is distressed. Notice his reaction in verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The last that Nehemiah had heard Progress had been made on the walls. He already knew that the, that the temple had been rebuilt, but he had 
heard before that the walls were being rebuilt and so he fully anticipated that the city was going to be done and restored. But when he learns of Jerusalem's condition, he is distraught and he goes into mourning and fasting and praying. Now for us, you might not think it's that big of a deal. I mean, we don't really see it as important to have Royal Oak surrounded by walls or whatever city you live in. But walls were critical in the ancient Near East because they were necessary for defense against enemies. And remember, there's all sorts of treasure inside of the temple uh, just loaded with gold and silver objects that God had demanded they make these things in that way. And so, if someone wanted to, to pillage that kind of a city, having no walls was a serious problem. And the enemies could easily get in, destroy the temple, and steal all the valuables. And Judah would be back to the very same place they just were some 70 years earlier without a place to worship God. And so this is a significant thing. Nehemiah is not just, man, I, I really have good thoughts about Jerusalem. Remember, he probably grew up in Babylon, probably had never been to Jerusalem up until the time in which he, he will go here in uh, chapter 2 and 3. And so, after his morning, verses 5 and 6, he prays to God for help. Where, what do you do when you realize that you're in a desperate situation? Where do you turn? And verses 5 and 6 show us that Nehemiah turns to God. He doesn't start immediately into his plans. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. He turns to God. And he begins his prayer in verse 5. By the way, verses 5 through uh, almost to the end of verse 11 is a prayer. Okay, He's going to recount some things that God had said. There's a promise in there that kind of doesn't feel like a prayer, but it's actually he's just recounting what God had said uh, to Moses and a promise that he accepts as personal, as true. So, verse 5, he appeals to God on the basis of his greatness. I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. So, you're, you're not a God who is unable to take care of this problem. And so, I appeal to you on the basis of your greatness. He also appeals to God on the basis of his faithfulness. The middle of verse 5 says, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. You're faithful to your people, God. You're not the one who goes back on covenants. It's we who do that. That's what he's going to say later. But he's, he's saying, God, you are not only a great God who has the ability to take care of this problem, but you're a faithful God who, who is faithful to His covenant. Verse 6, He appeals to God's mercy. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant which I am praying now. Notice the frequency of his prayer in verse 6. It says day and night. This is not just a one-off prayer. Like, I really hope God hears this and you know whatever you can do, do it. That'd be great. This is a desperate plea to God for help. That This is what fills his thoughts. We're going to find out here when we get to chapter 2 next week that he, he basically is praying for four months before the king even finds out that it's a problem. And that's the... Perhaps you remember the story there where he... He goes before the king. The king says, why are you so upset? What's, what's going on? I've never seen you like this before. And Nehemiah says, the, the place of my fathers has been torn down. The walls have been torn down. And I want to go back. And so, Nehemiah is for four months concerned about the, the people and the fact that they're not worshiping God as they should. 
Verse, the second part of verse 6 and verse 7, he acknowledges his own sin. So first he appeals to God on the basis of his character. And then he, he acknowledges his own sin and the sin of the people. Notice verse 6, the middle of the verse says, On behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel which we have sinned against you. So he doesn't say which they have done. They're terrible people. He says, No, I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. So he saw that the direct result of the temple walls not being rebuilt was a result of their sin. It was because they had not believed in God's covenant, His commandment to them. They were unwilling to fulfill it. And he included himself in that. He doesn't talk about they and them. We, we sometimes are, are quick to, to uh, acknowledge the sins of others, but we are slow to acknowledge our own sins. And yet, Nehemiah is a man of God who recognizes his own sin as he stands before the holy God. And then verses 8 and 9, he depends on the promises of God. He depends on the promises of God. Here's where he, you see a man who knows the Scriptures. He knows the Scriptures and he appeals to them. He says, God, remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses saying, and basically you told us two things. If we're unfaithful, then you'll scatter us, but if we're faithful, you'll restore us. That's what he says in verses 8 and 9. If we disobeyed you, you would scatter us. If we obeyed you, you would restore us. Nehemiah recognizes the God of history that God has dealt with Israel and how God's promises, uh, and, and that God's promises were real and that they were still applicable. I mean, you might think, well, Nehemiah, that's way back in the time of Moses, remember 1500 B.C. How, how is that really applicable to us today in 500 B.C., 454? A thousand years later, how could that really apply to you, Nehemiah? And yet he recognizes that it does apply. He doesn't use God's promises as a lucky charm or a ticket to get what he wants from God. He expects God to work on the basis of what he had promised. Listen to how Ralph Davis explains the connection between God's promises and our prayers. He says, Prayer takes hold of God's promises, turns them into petitions, things to ask for, and then sends them back to God. Nehemiah has every reason then to expect that God is going to give a favorable reply. God, here is what You have told us through Moses, Your servant, 1,000 years ago, albeit. But we believe that it's true. And You said if we return to You, that You'll restore us. So here's what I'm asking, God. I'm asking that You would forgive us for our sins and that You would return to us, that You would restore us. And He knows that that kind of prayer will be answered, that it will be accepted by God with a favorable favorable reply because God had promised it and that promise was true. What you're going to see throughout this book is that Nehemiah is constantly praying to God and that he's confident in God's goodness and that he understands the nature of God's promises and we can learn much from him. Not only does he remember God's promises, verse 10, he remembers the history of Israel. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. So God, you've done it before. This is not going to be an anomaly for you to come and work on our behalf. We, we've seen you do it before. 
You are an amazing God. You, you delivered your people from Egypt. Why can't you do it again? He remembered the history of Israel. He also finally recognizes the seriousness of his situation in verse 11. He says, O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. This man that he's talking about is what we're going to see in chapter 2 next week, and that is the king. This man, make, make my request favorable to him so that he's not uh, uh, opposed to me for Nehemiah, this situation in Jerusalem comes down to their failure to acknowledge God's holiness and faithfulness. And so he wants to reaffirm Israel's desire to honor Him. That's why he says, we delight to revere your name. Lord, those of us who delight to revere your name, please honor that by responding to our request. But he knows, Nehemiah knows, and God knows, that Nehemiah and the people of Israel will not be successful without God's mercy. And so he asks for mercy as he's, he's about to stand before the king and make a request to go back to Jerusalem. And this is not a small request because look at the last line. Now, I was the cupbearer for the king. The cupbearer was one of the highest and most trusted positions of all the king's servants. He had to serve food and drinks to the king but the king would not eat or drink them unless he first saw the cupbearer eat and drink them to protect against any kind of poisoning. And so he was a very trusted conf, uh, confidant, a servant on behalf of the king. Probably had even an advisory role if he was that trusted by the king. Maybe the king even went to him for questions about how to rule. He was the second most important figure in all of Persia. I was trying to think of a similarity in our day. You know, someone that had to have our president's trust, you know, maybe like the Secret Service, or, but, but someone with more of an advisory role than that. Because if you allow someone like that who's close to you not to be, a trustworthy, to be an untrustworthy person, then they could cause a great deal of damage and even death to you as the president. And so this is Nehemiah's position. And he's saying, God, this is a serious question I'm about to ask. And so I need your favor. It's not ultimately the king's favor. He could, he could go one way or the other. I don't know. But I know that I need your favor. I need you to respond to me. We'll also see that this is not a single prayer. I, I mentioned that this is one prayer from 5 to 11. But it's not a single prayer because it lasts for four months. Day and night, he prays to God on behalf of His people and on behalf of the situation. The story of Nehemiah is a story of God's faithfulness. And we serve a God, the same God that Nehemiah serves, that is not unjust to forget the work of His people and their dependence upon His promises. God is not going to forget your dependence upon His promises. He never fails on His promises. And He expects us to trust that He's going to follow through on what He told us. Now, let me talk to, to you a few minutes for why I think this applies to us some 2,500 years later and 6,500 miles away. In 
And I think it applies to us this way. God has made a number of promises to us. But one that came to mind while I was studying this was the promise that Christ would build His church. And the supplemental command that comes along with it that is the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and teaching them everything that I have commanded you. For I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against My church. They will not prevail. Even the greatest of the greatest of forces, of wicked forces, will not prevail against Christ's church. And so, I have all authority that's been given to me. And, and, I, and it exists in heaven and in earth. And so, here's what I'm telling to you. Go and make disciples. Does that promise and command have any effect on the way that we carry our lives within this church? Does that promise and command have any impact on how we give to missions? Does that promise and command compel us in any way to acknowledge our sin and our unfaithfulness in this area of making disciples? Seeing people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and then being taught everything that Christ has commanded. Do we ever acknowledge our sin in that area? I guess the question I'm asking is, is God stirring your heart to fulfill His promise to build His church? Are you confident that God wants to work through you and through us as a church? You see, Nehemiah understood the history of God's dealing with His people. And he understood the lack of concern, their current lack of concern for the holiness of God. And he was humble enough to confess his own sin and the sin of the people and then to depend upon God by asking from Him what God had already promised. You may feel far away from God right now, but, but do you realize that as a Christian you have a similar promise to what God had promised in verses 8 and 9 that Nehemiah remembers? If you turn from me, I'll turn from you. But if you come back to me, if you repent, I will restore you. We have a similar promise. We're not Israel. That's not our promise. Okay, but, but we have a similar one in James chapter 4, verse 8, where God tells us, if you, or James tells us, if you draw near to God, He will draw near to you. you believe that promise? Maybe you're not a Christian, but you have been listening to how God works in His people and you know that you're not in a position to listen and respond to God because you've been living your life according to your own desires. Let me plead with you this morning to draw near to God. The way that you do that is by this initial act of faith and repentance. It's you need to acknowledge your sin and turn in faith to His Son, Jesus Christ, who we've been praying about and singing about. He's the one who died to pay for the sins of all those who trust in Him. And you know, there are many things in this life to fear, but there's none greater than the wrath of God. And the only way that you can be freed from that wrath is by putting your trust in Jesus Christ and accepting His finished work alone as the only means to satisfy God's wrath. Here's how Peter said it in Acts 4.12. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Friend, we can find salvation in no place else than in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the only way to God. Now, if you want to know more about how you can know for sure that you have a right relationship with God, then please talk to me this week. Don't put it off. 
We also have a Bible study called Christianity Explored on Tuesday nights at 7 o'clock. We'd love for you to come. It's just for the next six weeks. We'd love to, to talk uh, and study the Scriptures together, the Gospel of Mark. There's a postcard with information about that Bible study on the back table and you can find out more on our website as well. Let me talk to you now if you're a Christian because maybe you're a Christian here today and you're struggling with trusting God. I would urge you to spend more time with God. You know, if the question that you ask is, how can I trust God? How can I trust God when all of these things have happened? How, how can I trust a God who has allowed some of these difficult things to take place in my life? I would urge you to spend more time with God. Because Psalm 9.10 says that those who know His name will trust Him. For God has never forsaken those who seek Him. As you come to know God more, you trust Him more. Right? If you had $500 and you needed somebody to, to, to watch it for you, to, to care for it, you don't just hand it to the first guy you see on the street. Can you take care of this for me? I'll come back and get it from you. Because you don't know Him. You can't trust Him. You, you give it to the person that you know the most. That you trust. That's the way God is. That's how trust works. It happens through knowledge. Come to know Him more. Understand how He's dealt with believers in history. That's why understanding the Scriptures is so important. Do you see what Nehemiah did? He, he thought back to what God had done before. So if you come to church every week and think, well, why are we going back over this again? Why do we go back over all this history that I learned about when I was a kid? It's because it, it comes to help us to know who God is and what He's done and how He will work in us when we trust Him. So come to know God if you want to trust Him. Trust in Him through your prayers and through your obedience. That's how you express your trust in Him. And as, you're tr- as you do, I think our church will begin to radiate the glory of Christ. We will be a recipient of the promises of God regarding His work of building His church and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be a part of that greater plan of You building this church, this bride, all believers from the time of Pentecost to the rapture that will be wedded with Christ as a perfect, spotless bride. Lord, You're making us into that where we are holy and acceptable to You, but we are not there we, we need to be refined. We need to be restored. Some here even need to be saved. They need to come to that place of faith and repentance. So we pray for Your grace. We, we ask for Your help. Lord, we want to trust You, but, but we have to be honest that sometimes it's easier to trust the things of this world. Sometimes it's easier to trust ourselves. It's hard to, to trust, to express faith, So we pray that You'd help us to focus our attention on You and Your work and to turn uh, our trust to You so that when we draw near to You, You draw near to us. Lord, what a great um, response that we can have from being being reminded of what Nehemiah and the other believers during his time did in turning themselves back to You, back to Your work. Stir our hearts get us up off of our couches and, and uh, change our routines so that we live for Your glory and bring about real change 
in a world that's dying and who hates our Savior. We pray for Your help in Jesus' name. Amen.